that in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we have assurance of pardon, the forgiveness of sins. We have safety in the cleft of the rock. We have the promise of eternal life. We have the righteousness of the law fulfilled, imputed to us. We have atonement in his shed blood for the punishment of your wrath due our sin. We have hope, Lord Jesus, that we are part of a glorious design from before time began to reap for yourself glory through the manifest, evident gospel going forth through your word proclaimed, ransoming yourself from a a people from the far corners of this earth who will join you in collective praise one day before the throne of grace, a massive multitude whose voices rush and roar like the sound of many waters, giving praise to your great name. Though we are a small band this morning, and though our praise is often hindered by the frailty of our flesh, Lord Jesus, in this in-between time, we nevertheless look to your word and with the eyes of faith see this glorious future. And Lord, we trust that your presence, Lord, in our midst, will encourage and equip us to live in light of the eternal power and truth of Jesus' bloodshed and what it purchased. As we look to your holy word this day, open our minds to understand the deep truths of the gospel. Quicken our souls, Lord, to take joy in our salvation and further equip us, Lord, to proclaim these words, your word, to a world yet lost and dying. In all of this, that your name would be championed would be glorified and lifted up, and that you might draw men unto yourself in repentance and faith in the only means, the only way of salvation, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. In his holy name we pray, amen. Praise God. What a glorious privilege we have today to open up the Holy Scriptures and to behold our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's do do so this morning by turning to Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, This morning concludes a long-running series in the book of Hebrews, where we have discussed at length, working through verse by verse, this entire incredible sermon and epistle. So as has kind of become our custom, I'd like to close our series in Hebrews this morning with an overview message. Because of the nature of our task today, we'll be covering very quickly large portions of the book of Hebrews to get us a sort of view from the bird's eye, if you will, and to leave us with a sense of the big picture of the power and the glory of this great book. But I would encourage you not to consider our study in Hebrews a close or the final word. Such would only be arrogance. We have only scratched the surface, brothers and sisters in Christ, of the treasures of our Lord revealed in these pages. Amazing. Every time I open this book, I am freshly amazed with the power of God revealed in every nook and cranny. And I pray this morning he would reveal more of himself as we study. The aim of this morning's message is to identify helpful points of structure, forming and providing an outline for the book of Hebrews so that we can have something of a grasp on this glorious, rich treatise of the gospel. The title of this morning's message is two phrases, since we dash, let us. Since we, let us. And the reason I chose that for a title is it's a construction that we find three different times in three separate passages throughout the book of Hebrews. 
The first is our text this morning. We'll read in a minute in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. The second we find in chapter 10, 19 through 25. And the third we find in chapter 11, 39 through 12, 2. The author says, since we have, for instance, a great high priest, let us then live in light of that truth. That's the basic construction of these three passages, and I think there are helpful points of reference and form something of an outline of the book of Hebrews. Would you stand this morning out of reverence for the holy word of God, and let us consider Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 in our hearing this morning. Listen as the holy word of Christ is proclaimed. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. Recently, I was listening to a discussion between an Orthodox Jew and an atheist. The atheist asked the Orthodox Jew a direct question. My Christian friends tell me that the evidence demands I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have the Old Testament scriptures as the foundation for your religion. Uh, Why do you reject the, or why do you not believe that Jesus rose from the dead? This is an interesting question, especially coming from an atheist of a, uh, you know, a self-described Jew. Uh, The Jew answers and says, well, I believe many of the prophecies in the Old Testament that appear to be speaking of Jesus are really a misread. I read the Hebrew, you see. And so we're supposed to uh, gather from that, I suppose, that because he has familiarity with the original languages, he is equipped to understand the Old Testament and is therefore, you know, uh, has therefore discovered that there really isn't uh, much to say in the Old Testament about the nature of the Messiah as we understand him in Christianity. Well, this is an arrogant position, let me uh, propose, and it's also completely absurd. You have to assume that your understanding of Hebrew and early Judaism, biblical Judaism, as we see it being a precursor for Christ in every single jot and tittle and detail, which we find revealed to us in the New Testament, you have to assume that your understanding of that ancient record of the Old Testament is better than the author of the book of Hebrews. That is an arrogant claim, let me submit to you. The author of Hebrews, as we unfold these words, or as we have seen these words unfolded to us in our series, has an intense, intimate, spirit-inspired understanding of what was going on in the, quote, Jewish religion of the Old Testament, which was nothing more than the same religion that we have in Christ today. It was just in type and shadow. But it becomes gloriously powerful and amazingly uh, truth-filled as we see its fulfillment in Christ. The author of Hebrews has a unique, keen, spirit-inspired, and historically, uh, and, and, uh, as well as experience-laden understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, and this is what informs his message throughout the course of this book. As we see this, we find that it may be common for people to doubt the reliability of the Christian faith. And it may be very common for people to dismiss the connection 
between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But I would submit to you it is far less common for people to hold this position after seriously contending with the book of Hebrews. I think people ignore what is here, and that is ultimately why they dismiss the idea, the notion that the Old Testament order, uh, sacrifices, priesthood, offices, and all that was prescribed in the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and on prophesied through the prophets, the reason that that is basically dismissed as not that significant is in fact because all of Scripture is not taken into account when people judge short-sightedly that the Christian faith really does not stand on any scriptural historical ground. Such is not the case. Even an objective scientific study would tell you the opposite if you only had eyes to see. As we see, that the, as we see this in the book of Hebrews, it might be a mystery to us who the author is. That is to say, through the years, people have suggested all kinds of different ideas for who maybe wrote the book of Hebrews. And it remains an open question today. However, it is certainly not a question who inspired this book and was its ultimate author. Certainly, the Spirit of God was the only ultimate source uh, who could be responsible for such a glorious treatise on redemption, uh, tying together the covenants and bringing such beautiful contours to the fore and identifying them with their powerful meaning in Christ. In all of this, we see from the beginning pages in the words of the commentators, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, quote, the highest of all revelations is given now in the Son of God, who is greater than the angels, and who, having completed redemption, sits enthroned at God's right hand. And the book continues to only add to this revelation glory upon glory as we see Christ in the Scripture. In the course of his treatise, our author points to major sources of inspirational encouragement in the divine plan of redemption revealed across the ages in all of Holy Scripture. And these featured milestones, may I suggest, provide a help, helpful structure points to the outline of his book. You may ask the question, why was Hebrews written? And you can come away with a, a strong answer by the final words of the book, 1322. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our, and then he goes on to, with a few notes about their brother Timothy and instructions to greet all the elders. If you back up a verse, he says in his prayer, a couple of verses, verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this is a word of exhortation, and it's a word of encouragement for the church, drawing on ultimate sources of inspiration. And these ultimate sources of inspiration come from an understanding of the gospel and are sufficient, he concludes and proclaims, to equip us, the church, now, even 2,000 years later from the original recipients reading these words, equip us with everything good that we may do his will. The byproduct, the aim of the book of Hebrews is to equip the church to walk in a way, as Paul has said, worthy in a manner worthy of our calling, 
to actually live in light, to manifest faith according to the glories of the gospel revealed. The heading of this morning's message, therefore, is the motive force of Hebrews is rooted in the following. What is the motive force of Hebrews? Where, what are the sources that the author draws from for this great inspiration to equip the church to endure persecution, to remain faithful no matter what's going on around them, to not grow weary in well-doing? What are the sources of inspiration, the motive force, if you will, that the author draws upon? These come to us under the following main points, perhaps. Number one, our great high priest. A motive force for the, for the book of Hebrews is rooted in Christ as our great high priest. Number two, the new and living way. The new and living way, we'll see that unfolded a bit as we touch upon this concept of the new covenant, if you will. Thirdly, a great cloud of witnesses. So we are motivated to uh, live out our calling as the church of Jesus Christ by these. Christ is our great high priest. In him is a new and living way, and we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We'll close this morning with a final point, words of exhortation. Application points in light of these primary motive forces in the book of Hebrews. Let's consider number one. A primary motive force in the book of Hebrews is rooted in Christ is our great high priest. Notice our opening text this morning. Again, Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Do you notice the construction? Since then, let us. Since then speaks to the motive force, the source of inspiration. Let us speaks to the command. Walk now in light of this truth. And what is the source, therefore, of inspiration and encouragement, of strength to motivate us to, to live as believers? It is the fact that we have a great high priest. Now, this uh, language here in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is preceded by some declarations, some revelation of Christ as greater than a number of things. Let's go back to verse one, or chapter 1. First of all, our author declares that Christ is greater than the angels. After extolling Christ as the radiance of the glory of God in verse 3, the exact imprint of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of his power, after making purification for sins, and now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, another term used for God the Father, having become, again speaking of Christ, verse 4, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, our author goes on to compare the greater glory of Christ and contrast it to the uh, lesser glory of angels. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. Well, we see verse 8, the son, greater glory still. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's, of course, quoting from the Old Testament scriptures. In this case, he's speaking uh, words from Psalm 110, Psalm 45, uh, Psalm 102. There's a number of citations throughout here. Psalm 104. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There is more language that compares Christ or that contrasts Christ to angels as the one who has greater glory still. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, but it has been testified somewhere, and then proceeds another quote from the Old Testament, ascribing prophetically this greater glory to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And again, verse 16, for surely, again, a reference to angels, for surely is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And here it speaks of Christ's redemptive work incorporating you and I as believers in this room, as sons of God, as having a privileged role in the scope of redemption. And even this is greater than that which the angels experience and participate in, in the great plan of God. So Jesus Christ in his person and in his work is beyond the greatest of all imaginable created beings. Now, when we think of angels, we marvel, do we not? How many of us have dreamed of that uh, beautiful night, that glorious evening when the skies break forth with song and a host of heavenly angels fill the expanse of the heavens uh, and triumphantly announcing to the shepherds that unto them is born this day a child who is Christ the Lord in this blinding light and these majestic voices, these creatures who fill the sky with glory and appear to men and men are compelled at different points there's a, uh, throughout scripture to even bow in worship. And the angels rightly refuse this kind, of, this kind of adoration. However, that speaks to something incredible, impressive. Their glory is to be admired and appreciated. They're beyond this realm. They are of a different order. They're supernatural and, and so forth. But now, as we consider them in light of Christ, they are but a shadow. There is nothing to be compared between an angel and Christ. Christ is so far above and beyond angels that our author finds reason after reason after reason from the Old Testament to declare that Christ is greater than the angels. You could say it this way. How great is our high priest, Jesus Christ? He is greater than all of the angels put together. He is greater than any of the glorious aspects associated with those celestial creatures. Even the seraphim who cover their face with their wings and are created with one special job to sing with amazing, flawless voices forever without end. Holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. The reason they exist is to give glory to the Son, who is greater still. John identifies the picture of those seraphim worshiping in the book of Isaiah. He identifies that picture with the Son. The Son is worthy of the worship of his saints. He is worthy of the worship of angels, because he is greater still. Our great high priest is greater than angels. Secondly, he is greater than someone else. Children, who would you say is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Who is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament? Any ideas? I hear Moses. What do we hear back here? I should say the greatest human prophet. I heard a couple Moseses. Very good. Moses is considered, in most accounts, the greatest of all the human prophets in the Old Testament. He was a center point 
for the religion of the Jews, of course. In the Old Testament scriptures, he was responsible for the authorship of our Genesis study. It was Moses, after all, who wrote the Pentateuch. God revealed himself to Moses in ways that you and I can only imagine. God revealed himself to Moses in such profound ways that Moses' face glowed with the afterburning glory, if you will, of being face-to-face in the Lord's holy presence. This is Moses, yet Jesus Christ is greater than him. In chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the holy calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful over all God's house as a son. And we are his house indeed, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And so we see, if Moses was the house, then Jesus was the builder. If Moses was a faithful servant of the Lord, and then Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. There is greater glory still than even that which Moses shared. I reference that Moses' face glowed. But do you remember the nature of that glory on Moses' face? Did it remain? No, it faded. The fading glory on Moses' face would be surpassed by the glory of another. Do you remember the moment on the Mount of Transfiguration? Who is there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Again, children, do you remember who is there? The Mount of Transfiguration? Does anyone remember? Elijah and? Elijah and Moses. That's awesome. Whose face was shining on the Mount of Transfiguration? Was it Moses? No, it was not. Was it Elijah? No, it was not. Jesus himself was shining forth. He was manifesting in this moment, in this window of opportunity to see him in his pre-incarnate glory. That is the glory that he shared as the second person of the Trinity, as God himself. He was displaying that glory in that moment of revelation to his three disciples. Why? Because he was greater than Moses and they were seeing that displayed before him. The scriptures go on to declare that the light that emanates from the greater than Moses, from Christ himself, is such that no sun, no other body of light is needed in the new heavens and new earth. Why? Because our great high priest, Jesus Christ, is greater than the angels, and he is greater than Moses. Finally, under our great high priest, we find that the promises in Christ are greater than any the old covenant could boast. Chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So there is a promise here, and there is a concern that you would fail to reach the greater promise. The word continues to unfold. It says, verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. 
And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter, to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, saying that through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Notice verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua was Moses' successor. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, right in this passage here, the Sabbath rest, that promise of rest uh, that was given to the people was shared among the faithful when they were following the terms of the covenant in a provisional way. God provided for them a day where they could rest from their labors. It was part of the covenant promise. Blessings were attached to the covenants of old, not just a Sabbath rest weekly, but also that their land would flourish and bloom with the fruit of the womb. Um, and with the fruit of the seed that, that God had provided for them. We've read recently in Deuteronomy 28. However, none of these promises can compare to what is promised in Jesus Christ. If you thought rest from your labor after six days was a good thing, just wait until the Sabbath rest of glory is achieved when we are ushered from this realm into heaven one day. Furthermore, the Sabbath rest that will be achieved when God's works are completed in time and the new heavens and new earth arrive. You cannot imagine such a glorious existence as the recreated earth, which will spring forth in the fullness of Sabbath realized, the fullness of the promises in Christ realized. The old covenant was a type and shadow. It pointed forward in type. It, it showed that there was something uh, uh, great to be expected, but it was not realized at that time. Yet there would come another, another Moses, if you will, one greater than the angels, a prophet, priest, and king, a great high priest, greater than Aaron, greater than the Levitical order, with greater promises, more glory than Moses, greater than the angels, who would establish all of these things. Saints in Christ this morning, if we lived in light, of the truth of our great high priest and what is available through him and the proof positive that this is the case on account of his person and work, evident not just in our lives as we have been born again if you're in him today, but in his holy scriptures, we should be the most confident, resilient, enduring of all peoples. And so we return in the book of Hebrews to the greatest of inspirational forces, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. The second major motive force in the book of Hebrews. Turn with me to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Again, we see this since we let us construction, if you will, providing another reference point in the outline of this great, of this great book. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed 
with pure water. He goes on with two more let us statements. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And finally, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So do you see the construction again, the way the the author shapes his argument? He gives us two since thens, and then he follows follows them up with three let us's, if you will. Since then, or since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, and then this phrase, verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, verse 21, he adds, this is added to what he has previously stated, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and then proceeds the application, let us therefore live in light of that, draw near, hold fast, and stir up one another. The verses preceding this, the chapters preceding this, detail, I submit, the new and living way that he references in summary here. What is the new and living way pioneered by Jesus Christ, our high priest? Perhaps we can understand it under three main points. The order of Melchizedek, this is the new and living way of which he speaks. Secondly, the true tent. And thirdly, the new covenant. So chapters 5 all the way through 10 reference these concepts. First of all, the order of Melchizedek. We've spent time on all of these in the past. Again, this is just by way of overview to give us a sense of the big picture. Chapter 5, verse 1. For every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. We go on to find out what kind specifically of high priest Christ is in verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is a different kind of high priest than any of the high priests who preceded him save one. And that individual was by type, not by substance, may I suggest, that is Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a unique figure in the Old Testament. In the record of his interaction with Abraham, his name comes up without a lineage. And Hebrews identifies this as speaking to another priest to come who would continue forever, who would not die, There would not need to be a succession plan, other priests to follow him. Why? Because by the power of an indestructible life, he was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Furthermore, in the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek is not just a priest as Aaron was, filling one particular aspect of the office. He was the king of righteousness. He was the king of peace. And in Christ, we find the multiple offices combined into one person, prophet, priest, king. And in his priesthood, he is not just the one who intercedes, who goes between, who mediates between God and man, but he is also the sacrifice. He offers his own blood indeed on the altar as sufficient payment for our sins, a new order indeed, 
a new type of high priest altogether, a new and living way in the Melchizedekian sense has been pioneered by our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is an incredible source of encouragement and inspiration for you and I. Our priest never dies. He always prays for us. His sacrifice is absolutely sufficient for all of our sins forever. And he ever lives making intercession for us at the right hand of the majesty on high as we see him in verse one of this great book. This is Jesus Christ according to the order of Melchizedek, our high priest, chapter 619. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, an anchor for the soul, an absolute security, a mooring post from which no storm can tear our vessel from its sure location. What is it? We have a hope that enters in to the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The order of the Melchizedekian priesthood is such that we can follow our priest into the Holy of Holies. In the old system, only the high priest could go in to that coveted place of the very presence of God, where God would meet face to face with his people. One representative was allowed to go. But that picture gave way to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, whose priesthood was of a different order altogether. And part of the reality of his priesthood is that we will follow him as the scriptures in Hebrews go on to declare through his torn flesh beyond the veil into the holy place, perfect, full communion is promised us through our a high priest, Jesus Christ. This is the new and living way. The old way was marked by death. It was a sad day when Eli kicked the bucket, fell over backwards, neck was broken, and his sons were apostate, killed in battle. A sad day in Israel, indeed. Why? Where's the priesthood? Where's the one who can intercede on our behalf before the Lord? Where is the Ark of the Covenant? Oh, it's stolen by the Philistines. It's sitting in the temple Dagon right now. Of course, Dagon crumbles, but the people are still aimless, lost. Where is the center of their spiritual hope to be found if the Ark has been confiscated and the priest is dead? Well, their hope would be found one day in the future in a new and living way of the priest, of priests, if you will, Jesus Christ, according to the order of Melchizedek, who would never die, but by the power of an indestructible life, proved on his resurrection, would ever live to make intercession for us. This is a great source of encouragement for us. Now, Jesus Christ inhabits as priest the true tent, the second concept of the new and living way, if you will, Chapter 8, verse 1 begins to detail this concept. Now, the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, here's the phrase, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. What did Christ, pausing there, what did Christ offer on our behalf? his own flesh and blood on the mercy seat, as it were. And where was the true tent? The true tent we go on to see was not a place representative of curtains and hammered out by artisans here, not even the glories of Solomon's temple beyond that. How much greater? The heavens, in fact. 
He mediates a better covenant in the perfect tent, the place, the dwelling, before the right hand of the majesty on high and the presence of God the Father himself. Chapter 9, verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which was the lampstand, table, bread of the presence, and so forth. He goes on to detail all of these uh, instruments, all this furniture, as we call it, in the temple. But then we see that this is so far surpassed, it cannot even be compared. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is the new and living way. It secures new and living and, and a new and living way for us, new spiritual eternal life. The means of Christ's own blood secures eternal life for us, eternal redemption from our sins and safe passage with him into the true tent that is perfect communion in the presence of an almighty and holy God because our sins have been washed away absolutely spotless clean by the cleansing power of the great sacrifice of our high priest, Jesus Christ, shed blood from his broken body. All of this speaks to a new covenant, a new priesthood, the perfect tent, and a new covenant. An overlapping concept in this New and living way is detailed in a difference in the covenantal terms now that we find in Christ. It says back in chapter 8, verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming. Now this is Old Testament prophecy. Declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed them no concern, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here we see verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, what is detailed in this passage is a personal, intimate relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ and His indwelling Spirit that is something that the Old Covenant spoke of in shadow form, but is fulfilled ultimately, fully, and completely. And the New Covenant terms of the priesthood of Jesus Christ are greater than the angels, are greater than Moses, with greater promises, our Melchizedekian high priest, whoever lives and is intercedes in the true tent before the right hand of the Father and has fulfilled the terms of the new covenant that was spoken of of old and all of these things are ours in Jesus Christ. Overwhelming in its glories, is it not? Incredibly powerful. Now these are the motive forces of encouragement that the author of Hebrews draws upon. Christ is our great high priest and in him is a new and living way. One final motive force we see detailed in Hebrews 11 and 12. 
This is the great cloud of witnesses. Notice again the since we or since and let us construction. Hebrews eleven thirty nine, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Speaking of the old covenant saints, verse 40, since God, there's a since statement, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. 12.1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is a great cloud of witnesses that precede us. That is a source of great inspiration and encouragement for you and me, all of the church for all ages. Individuals from this great cloud of witnesses are highlighted all through chapter 11, often called the great hall of faith. But the cloud of witnesses, I suggest, is greater still. If you go back to Hebrews 1, what are the first words of this great book? It's witness, words that uh, speak to, point to a prior witness to what we have realized in Christ. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So we see via prophets and son that the cloud of witnesses is great. In fact, it includes God's word itself. God's word through the mouth of the prophets, witnesses to the power of what was to come, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Furthermore, there are particular witnesses, saints who trusted and believed and had faith, even in, under old covenant conditions of what was to come, and the record of their exploits and their testimony is given for us all through chapter 11. They fall into two categories, the victorious faithful, if you will, and the suffering faithful. Before we see the summary language in chapter 11, consider this word cloud. Have you ever thought about that? What does the author mean? That we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. If you look in an interlinear, you know, that tries to uh, provide a little clearer understanding of what's associated with the original languages with that word, what you find is that word is used to represent a multitude, a great number, that which is beyond counting, an unfathomable sum. But think of it this way, why the term cloud? When you see a cloud in the sky, you don't say to someone, oh, look, uh, 10 trillion water droplets. You don't see a fog roll in and say, oh, there's 15.2 trillion bits of moisture. Or you don't see a cloud in the sky and say, there's, you know, uh, umpteen, you know, a trillion atoms or what, whatever. Uh, what you do say is, that's a cloud. The fog rolled in. Look at the mist. Why? Because the number is so many that you can't, with your uh, discern, differentiating ability as a mere human, uh, identify all the little droplets of water. They all come together to form this great cloud. That's the idea behind the, the term, a cloud of witnesses. There are individual droplets, if you will, that are cited, but they form this great cloud. That is to say, the author points to, as an inspirational source for us, an absolutely overwhelming body of evidence for your faith in Jesus Christ. 
There were people willing to die for the truth of what you confess before Christ was ever born. And each one of those instances adds to the weight of their testimony until Christ has come. And now, since they had faith, how much can we believe surrounded by this cloud of witnesses and partakers of such greater promises that we have means to stand? Do you see? It is a great source of inspiration. Now, how did this inspiration come to us? It came to us by triumph. It came to us by sorrow. It says in verse 32 of chapter 11, for what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms. Notice this list, triumphal exploits. These are the victorious saints, the category of the things that are way cool, sound like superheroes. They, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. The victorious faithful add to this cloud of witnesses showing that God's power through their testimony is sometimes evident in his uh, declaring victory, victory through their obedience over his enemies. But there is another category that adds to the testimony of the faithful. These are those who suffer for the name. Some were tortured, it goes on in verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, walking about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And then proceeds our third uh, major structure point this morning, the since and let us statement that points to these examples of the faithful to give us encouragement. If they can stand under these conditions, so can we. So my family is praising the Lord today because on uh, just a couple days ago, our, our little baby Sebastian was born. I'm going to break one of my rules of using one of my kids as a sermon illustration because he'll never remember this because he's only like two days old. So Sebastian is named for a figure in church history. Uh, Sebastian, as tradition uh, unfolds, was, came to Christ during a time of great persecution of the church. He was, um, as history records, a soldier under Diocletian. He served in the Roman army. Diocletian was an antichrist figure. He was a, an emperor who sought to stamp out the Christians, declared war, and tried to kill them wherever he found them. Well, Diocletian hid his identity as a Christian for a while, but so many people were coming to Christ through his ministry and others alongside him that it soon became apparent that he was up to something. And so he was called to give an account for his Christian faith. He did not back down, and he was lashed to a stake, and he was pierced with numbers of arrows and left for dead. Christians later found him. They meant to collect his body and to treat his burial uh, with honor as he had shared in the sufferings of Christ, perhaps put him in a uh, respectable location, their catacombs, catacombs to hide his body, to protect it from further desecration. They found that God had spared him. In this instance, in uh, Sebastian's life, he had been one like this first category uh, that had quenched the power of fire. They had escaped death. The women received, it says, back their dead by resurrection. 
Sebastian's mother, she was alive, could celebrate the resurrecting power of God, saving him from martyrdom that day. Well, after this event, Sebastian's faith and confidence only grew. And there came a time later when he confronted the emperor himself. He understood himself as an ambassador of his Lord Jesus Christ, who was king of kings and lord of lords, and knew it was his duty to call, yes, indeed, the emperor, the highest in power and authority in all the known world, to repentance for his sins. And he did so. Sebastian called Diocletian to repentance. The man was hard-hearted and like Pharaoh of old, refused to listen to the word of God. And this time, the martyrdom attempts and Sebastian were successful and he died. And I trust we will meet him. And if these accounts are true, he joined that cloud of witnesses, did he not? And he also joined the second category of ones uh, of people who suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They're stoned, sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins and sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. God has ordained in his sovereignty, often through the course of his redemptive history, two ways of showing forth the power of his faith. The power of faith is manifest in defeat of his enemies. The power of our faith is also manifest in the fact that even at death's door, our faith is not defeated. And these are great sources of inspiration. The Lord knows which he may have for you, a life where you may not go to the gallows, you may not go die by the sword, perhaps. But for you, remember that his grace in giving you a life you ought to draw from that inspiration that he is powerful to save you and to keep you and unto your calling. But if you have to suffer greatly for his name, uh, draw from that also strength or draw in that moment strength from those who have gone before and have seen and believed that they have re- been the recipients of eternal life. And because they are in Christ, they will survive the grave. In closing this morning, our author has identified his book as a word of exhortation we've seen in, final clo- in the final pages, chapter 13, verse 22, we won't touch upon them today, but they're exhortational. That's actually not the adjective form of exhortation. The adjective form of exhortation is hortatory, but that's kind of a word that we don't use very often. There are hortatory asides through the course of the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, chapter 10, and chapter 12. Strong words of correction and warning. We've gone through them. Revisit them yourself. And do so in light of the powerful sources of motivation and inspiration. Take these, this encouragement from the Old Covenant seriously and, ta- and the uh, New Covenant fulfilled in Christ. And also take the warning seriously in the book of Hebrews. As you do so, you will find yourself, I trust, moved by the Holy Spirit, joining in the worship, mixing your praises with the author of Hebrews who celebrates from the lesser to the greater, the greater glories of Jesus evident in the gospel. He expounds these all through the pages and brings them to a crescendo in chapter 12. He says, verse 18, you have not come to what may be touched. So this would be the lesser, Mount Sinai is in view, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, sound of trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But he goes on to say that we've come to another mountain entirely, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, verse 22, heavenly Jerusalem. And what What is associated with this event? Innumerable angels in festal gathering. The assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Finally, let us read again this morning the closing benediction of this great book. 
The last words, prayer of goodbye and encouragement that the author of Hebrews gives the church then and now. This is found in Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Let us take these words personally as if they were written directly to us because by the Spirit's use of them today, that is in fact what they are. Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And thus the book of Hebrews effectively closes. What a powerful source of inspiration we have before us today. And this morning, I would encourage you to think of these words of Christ's superior glory and how it is manifest in his shed blood and his broken body as we partake of the Lord's table. Today, we have even further grace to add to our encouragement, uh, the, not only the understanding of Christ through the pages of Hebrews, but the understanding of Christ's work dramatized before us in this meal today, if you will. As you partake as a believer in this room, in mere moments, in the bread that represents the body of Christ, and in the cup that represents his shed blood, remember that you are partaking, so to speak, in the work of our great high priest, the one who is greater than the angels, greater than the mo- greater than and living way, according to the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever, in the true tent, the true and enduring presence of almighty God, in, the, in terms of a new covenant whereby we have eternal assurance of our sins atoned for by his blood. And this is testified to by all his holy word and his faithful saints in victory and in suffering through all of the ages. All of that and so much more as wrapped up in this covenant meal that we have before us today. Remember that as we partake. Not only is the glory of Christ manifest in the fact that his body was broken, his blood was shed for us, but it more than this, it was shed for you. It was shed for you, saint. As you personally partake in this, you partake. It reminds us of all that we partake in in the gospel. And Hebrews is so saturated and so dripping with truth that it's impossible for our mere minds to comprehend. However, I'm thankful that through the Spirit's use of his proclaimed word and communion, the communion table today, we can add to our understanding and add to our worship more reasons to give God all the glory for what he has done in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us transition in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank, for, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have today in this worship service to lift up and to extol the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We are also so thankful today that in this meal, we are reminded that Christ is ours tangibly, that in him, we have eternal life, that our sins are atoned for sufficiently by his shed blood. And through his torn flesh, we have access, safe passage through the veil into the true tent one day, the holy of holies, perfect fellowship, redemption, reconciliation with a holy God. Remind us of these things today as we partake at your table and bind us together in the sweet unity of the shared experience of salvation in Christ our Lord. And equip us through these means, Lord, to stand strong even in the days of persecution. 
should you ordain them for us and all that you might be manifest and glorified forever and ever through your word, through your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.